Hey friends, this is Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous, where we discuss pop culture through the lens of race or gender, and sometimes both. I'm your host, Julia Washington, and on today's show, we're discussing mental health in high school with guest Anne Foistel. Hey friends, love our show, but hate the commercials. Become a pop culture club member on Patreon for $10 a month to receive ad free episodes with bonus content, bonus episodes, a virtual meetup to discuss movies and television, and so much more. To learn more about how to become one of our Patreon pals, visit popculturemakesmejealous.com or visit the link in our show notes. More recently, mental health has been a major topic of conversation from the impacts of social media to the pandemic. There are more studies now than ever before that highlight what teens today are experiencing. In our episode titled Smash the Patriarchy with Facts, I lightly touched on my mental state in 2016 through 2019. But the truth of the matter, in hindsight, is that I was likely depressed, but in denial about it. For me, the depression was caused by a situation beyond my control. And the more I tried to better my life, the harder I fell, the more I leaned on just having a good time, numbing the pain and hiding from nearly all responsibilities with few exceptions, my kid in graduate school. In today's world, nearly one in five or 52 million adults are living with a mental illness, according to the National Institute for Mental Health. And the CDC reports that between 2009 and 2019, there has been a 40% increase in mental illness in teens with more than one in three high school students having experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. Despite the efforts to normalize mental health illness, wellness, and care, stigma still persists. But before we dive into our discussion, I want to introduce you to my guest. Anne Foistel is a writer, business owner, editor, proofreader, data entry tech, and transcriber. Because she has struggled with her own mental health issues, she feels called to be an advocate for others who have the same challenges. Her goal is to help everyone find easily accessible ways to improve their mental health. She wrote the book, Our Favorite Movies, How Films Affect Our Mental Health. Anne, welcome to the show, and I think you're the perfect guest for today's topic. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited you're here. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Sure. So my book um, is about how mental health and movies intersect. Um, I discovered... um, about six years ago that my entire life I've been using watching movies as a form of mental health care. I've been dealing with depression since 10, uh, diagnosed with bipolar disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, and movies have always been there for me. And um, through my research, I found that's you know, true for so many people that movies help your mood, can help make you kinder, connect with others, understand yourself, understand others. Um, it can even make some children less aggressive um, if they go through something called a cinema therapy support group. Oh, I love that. I love that. I am a big, I mean, I love TV movies. I love that, you know, there's something out there that gives us language when we don't have the language ourselves. I think that's so important. And even though we focus a lot on race and gender in this show, you almost, you almost can't 
pivot away from mental mental health either, because some of the things that you mentioned, you know, I watch Gilmore girls every fall because it's a comfort show. I know it's going to happen. Fall's always very, you know, anxiety ridden because there's a lot happening with back to school and the financial stress of back to school. And then every holiday known demand starts, you know, and it's just a big thing. So Gilmore girls brings me peace. <laughs> It's an amazing show. I even I should have worn my Gilmore Girls shirt because I have one. Yes, I love it that. It says Luke's on it. So yes, I love that. <laughs> Pop culture can often be harmful or hurtful, and in the case of mental illness, it could be argued that it is more hurtful until the '90s, when movies like Mad Love and Virgin Suicides. Even then, there was a very specific lens these themes were viewed through. In the 2000s, movies like 13 and Girl Interrupted come to mind. But even when movies and television don't portray characters with mental illness, there's something comforting about our favorite shows and titles. And in 2020, we saw more people writing about why we return to movies and television. We have seen over and over again. So, Anne, I want to start with talking about your relationship with mental health and what led you to write the book. Can you share with our friends at home more about your journey? Sure. Yeah. So like I said, you know, I've been diagnosed with bipolar and generalized anxiety disorder that happened in my early twenties. But it, when I was around 10 years old, I was, that's when that my depression started. And when I started thinking about dying by suicide, so mm. that's been going on, um, in my head since then. Um, even when I'm at my best, I, I sometimes just have fleeting thoughts of suicide. So it's something I've had to sort of accept and also be cognizant of when it gets worse kind of thing. So it's just something I, I've, I've learned to live with. And um, yeah, it, it, it's not easy in any sense of the word, but I do feel that I've also gained things like empathy mm -hmm. through, you know, my, my lifetime of, of mental health struggles. So um yeah, I, I got, I was hospitalized several times in college. And then a few times after that, um, I did have, I've had two suicide attempts in my life. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's, it's been rough, but I think I've gained so much knowledge of myself that I wouldn't necessarily have had if I hadn't done therapy and, and, you know, done different self-care techniques and medication, that kind of thing. Yeah. I think therapy should be something that, um, is standard issue. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, the scale of mental illness is it, it, I mean, it's a spectrum, right? Like it's not as simple as, you know, or it can be as simple as today was really hard and I need to talk to somebody or it can be more severe than that. But at the end of the day, we all need somebody on the outside to help us understand what's going on in our minds because we're too close. We're just too close to the mirror for that. And I think that exactly. we don't do a good job in our country with supporting people through those issues. And we see that a lot with like postpartum depression too, or just our topic today, kids in high school and even just general, like even just grief of like, Hey, you know, now I'm 40 and my life isn't what I thought it would be. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's points in our life where we need support and it's so hard to access sometimes. And that just yeah. blows my mind. And it's just such a it's not humane in my opinion to make no. it so difficult to access support like that. 
No, it's sad. And, uh, you know, I really wish that wasn't the way it was in this country. I wish that everybody could do therapy and not worry about, you know, the cost and also not worry about the stigma. I mean, that the stigma is something that's worldwide. Like, I don't know if that's ever going to completely go away. It's better than it was. Mm -hmm. It's definitely better than it was. I mean, I, I compare now to when I first got diagnosed with depression in my teenage years and things are definitely better, but they're still not what they could be. Yeah. Um, and, you know, where I live in Colorado, you know, we're, we're at the bottom of the pack when it comes to our, the mental health care that we give the oh, our, interesting. You know, people in our state, which is yeah. pretty sad. And that just, a lot of that goes to, towards funding, mm-hmm. you know, what, you know, just what the, what, what money the state puts into mental health care is just not where it could be. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, yeah. In California they do it's, I mean, well, I don't know in our County, it's hard because a lot of the programs, you either have to have a lot of money or you have to also have some other issue. Like Mm -hmm. if you're not, if you're going to private pay, that's one thing, but, um, our county's behavioral health and recovery services, you know, the way, and they have to, they have to prioritize depending on what the needs are. Otherwise they wouldn't be able to function, but it is really hard to see, you know, if somebody has, somebody has to have some sort of addiction issue as well in order to receive Mm. like treatment. I mean, not in order to receive, but it's, it helps move you along in the process and Uh. not everyone has an addiction issue along with some sort of mental health issue. So, so they kind of blur that line a little bit. Sometimes they do the best work that they can with the resources that they have and the support team that they have, but it's hard to hire social workers. It's hard to hire licensed therapists. And I just don't know what the answer is, but I know that talking about these things helps move the needle forward. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. It's just so important to talk about them. And the more we do that, the, you know, the, the more people are going to listen because it's just so, so important to do that. Um, and, and so I thought I'd go into, um, why I wrote the book. Yes, please. Yeah, sure. So I had been working on, um, uh, basically a crisis line and I had gotten burnt out. And I wanted to still do something with mental health. I wanted to stay in the field somehow. So I thought I would write about it. And um, I had uh, come to the realization, like I had said before, that movies had always been there for me and sort of wanting to look at, you know, how do movies and, and mental health link up? You know, who doesn't want to talk about two of their favorite subjects? right? Yeah. <laughs> if you can link them up, that's awesome. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, yeah. So I decided to, you know, just do more research and also, um, I wasn't sure what type of book I wanted. And I talked to a woman who I didn't know before, but I was just doing a networking thing with her. And she says, well, don't you want to make the book personal? Mm. You know? And I said, well, obviously, <laughs> That makes so much sense. So our favorite movies refers to 10 of the 12 movies that I focus on in the book are ones that my sister and I watched a lot growing up. Mm, I love that. We love to watch together. Can you give us some of those? My sister and I are very different people. 
-hmm. and we you know we weren't always super close but we loved to watch movies together Mm -hmm. that was one of the ways we connected like our favorite movie to watch together was when harry met sally i love that movie so much We have an episode um, in season two where my friend Libby comes on and we talk about when Harry met Sally and it was just, it, you know, it's one, it's an, again, it's one that I watch on repeat because mm-hmm. we're coming up on Valentine's day. So I need to get a fill. I like to watch it between like autumn and then Valentine's day is kind of the cutoff for me because <laughs> it feels so fall winter and that again, it's that comfort. It feels like the right season to watch it. And then after Valentine's day, I'm like, I got to wait until October. <laughs> <laughs> I got to see it when, cause they had a 30th anniversary theater run through uh-huh. Alamo. So I watched that back in 2019. I went to the theater and it was just so nice to like, watch it with a theater full of people, you know, yeah. I, there's, I, I really do. I haven't done that much during COVID is go to the theater, but mm-hmm. I do love to do that. So, I do too. Yeah. I drag my son sometimes whenever a classic film's coming on big screen. I'm always mm-hmm. like, I guess what we're doing on Sunday. And he's just like, oh, I just want to be home all day. And I'm like, yeah, but when are we ever going to see this movie on the big screen? It like literally came out six years ago. So never, this is our chance. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What are some of the titles in your book? There are what, some of the movies that you talk about in your book. Sure. Um, so some of the movies and we'll, we'll talk about Inside Out later yeah. on. Um, so other movies include, uh, The Princess Bride, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, um, A League of Their Own, Fried Green Tomatoes, Little Women, as you talked about before in a previous, that, I love that episode. Thank you. Um, Contact. Uh, Joe versus the volcano. Which oh is my a gosh, Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks movie, and completely underrated. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Underrated. Uh, Tommy Boy. Um, defending your life, which is a movie about the afterlife that everybody's mm. seen, but I think everybody should see defending your life. Um, so I just went out of order, so I don't remember <laughs> which I think we'll stop there. So yeah. I... Yeah. The, we need some mystery. So people will buy the book. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. The film inside out released in 2015 and is the story about Riley, a young girl uprooted from her Midwest life and moved to San Francisco, her emotions, joy, fear, anger, disgust, and sadness conflict on how best to navigate a new city house and school. The movie was met with critical and box office acclaim, which paid off for Pixar big time. The care and detail the team behind this film poured into the work is clear with the final result with 116 award nominations in total and winning a hundred of them, including the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature Film. At the time of its release, the New York Times had this to say, quote, Inside Out turns a critical eye on the way the duty to be cheerful is imposed on children by well-intentioned adults and by the psychological mechanisms those grown-up authorities help to install. Where's my happy girl? Riley's parents are fond of saying when she seems down. And then the forced smile that results is quietly heartbreaking. Not that Riley's mother and father are bad people. 
we see that their own heads are just as crowded as hers. They also have their own external worries and stresses, including a new house, a fledging business, and a child on the brink of a momentous change. So I want to talk about what it is about this movie that you love and why, and why is it so important for people to understand their emotions and how it plays into working with their mind and their mental health? Okay. Um, so I love this movie so much. Um, it just, it, it makes me smile. It makes me laugh. It makes me cry. It makes me think, Mm -hmm. um, it, it just makes me feel good, you know? Yeah. Um, there's all the emotions there watching this movie. Well, not really like anger or disgust, but <laughs> right, but still, <laughs> but definitely joy, sadness. Um, and I think there's some fear too. I mean, you're you're worried about her, at least, you know, you, 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 you yeah, you're worried about what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, not overly so, but like any movie, there's some tension. Mm-hmm. You know, are they going to be able to get back to emotional headquarters? I loved that that they had like an emotional headquarters. Like there's this main place where your emotions are housed and then everything else is chaos, not chaos, but I just, I loved how they did that. I thought that was a really Mm -hmm. good touch. No, I agree. I agree. I love that idea that there is this, the, the base of your emotions and Mm -hmm. um, sort of the idea that different emotions could be sort of in charge. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought it was interesting how Joy was in charge in Riley's mind. And then what do you do when who's ever in charge of your emotions is no one, it has, you know, sort of gone AWOL kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, if you look at the other characters who well, we see the emotions inside of their heads, like the mom, her sadness is is the one who is in charge. So... Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, I guess look. I didn't pick that up when I watched it this week. That's really, that's an interesting commentary. Yeah. And it looks like anger is in charge of the dad set. Well, that's hilarious, but also yeah. sad. <laughs> <laughs> like with the cat, it's all over the place. Yeah. yeah like you, I love the fact there's like a cat and a dog. Like yeah. it's just like perfect. But, you know, it was just, you see, you know, it's sad. I mean, the movie talks, it's like sadness equals empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like what I was talking about before with the sad, with empathy came from my mental health issues. Yeah. And so that's where her mom was leading from like a, a point of empathy, which also was sadness. Yeah. There's so. that scene where, um, and I made a note because I was like, oh, I want to bring this up. There's a scene where, bing bong has like he's lost the rocket and he's super sad and joy's just trying so hard to just be like everything's fine it's fine we're fine we're gonna be fine and here comes sadness and she completely validates his emotions so like you're saying she has empathy and he's like she says to him specifically I'm sorry. They took your rocket they took something that you loved it's gone forever and then joy kind of like admonishes her for saying that like how dare you right. like, what are you doing don't do that but then you know what happens is bing bong's like thank you for that like he's feels seen and he feels better because someone acknowledged that he his emotions were real and didn't dismiss him and 
it's not like joy is dismissing everyone's emotions. She's trying so hard to like be joyful, but parts of her do come off as very dismissive when sadness is having her sadness. Yeah. And I felt that scene was so good because it helps you realize like acknowledge that somebody is going through something, even if you don't understand it, like sadness understood it, joy didn't. And then joy realizes like, oh, okay. At some okay, point. So that's re- my favorite scene in the movie. Is it? So I, I love, love that, that you brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> it's my favorite scene. It just makes me so happy. It sort of makes me think of sort of this idea that, you know, that you, if you have that experience of sadness, mm-hmm. then you can help other people with their sadness. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I see that a lot too, just culturally we have, um, when people don't fully understand something, they do become very dismissive and they're just like, I don't have time for your problems. Even if you don't have time for somebody else's concerns, you could still say like, I'm sorry, you're going through this right now. I wish I had the bandwidth to help you. And if you do have the bandwidth to help somebody, you could say, how can I support you? But also I struggle sometimes with the idea of like putting the onus on the person struggling to tell me how to support them because Mm -hmm. that, I feel like that could feel like a lot of pressure too, to be like, well, I don't want to be a burden. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it it can be a a bit of a tightrope. Um, you know, cause you always want to be as, as supportive as possible, but mm-hmm. sometimes you're not sure exactly what, what words to say, but I really do feel as somebody who's been in a situation when people have reached out to me that it doesn't, I, mean, I don't want to say it doesn't matter what they say, but it just matters so much that they care. Mm. And if they ask me, what can I, what they can do for me to me, that's actually nice. Yeah. You know, because then I can say, Hey, I want a hug or, Hey, can you, you know, buy a magazine for me? That's not really quite where I was. I'm thinking that's like 20 years ago. I really know. I'm not find a print magazine as much, but you know, I'm thinking of like when I, I've been hospitalized and if a friend wanted to bring me something, um, you know, to do when I was hospitalized, Mm -hmm. that would be one thing that, that would have helped or what did help was things like magazines, because those are easy to read. You don't have to concentrate on too much. And, you know, in the hospital, they don't really allow you any kind of electronics. So you can't really, you know, they can't really give you, you know, send you something over your phone or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest message this time around, because the first time I saw inside out, of course I cried and I was wrecked and I was just like, we need to be better about how we treat people and our emotions. Oh my gosh. Um, but this time around that marriage between joy and sadness, living in harmony together, that was really strong this time around. And I just think that's so powerful and such an important message because we are so, focused on you have to be happy and there's no room for anything else and that's just not real (laughs) yeah exactly it is completely unreal it's just not the way we work and that's the whole thing is like you know um I'm thinking back on this therapist I had um in my 20s who said I should smile more Oh, have mercy. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> That's not or, the way it works. Or That's those, not the way any of this works. You know, they, it's yeah. just, 
you know, it just, it, it's so demeaning. And so, yeah, that's another thing. If somebody is feeling down, don't try to tell them, oh, you should just look on the bright side. Oh, just smile. Oh, yeah. you know, everything's not so bad. Just snap out of it. You know, none of that is helpful. Yeah. And for me, I'm like, what do those things even mean? Because like, I, uh, you know, what if I, like when I was unemployed, I mentioned, and this is nothing like our, our situations are very different. Right. So like, mm-hmm. that's the other thing too, where people play the comparison game and it's just like, okay, what the point is, is you have emotions and feeling like, let's talk about it. But in 20, when I was unemployed and really like, I literally getting off the couch was like, not a thing. I was like on the couch watching TV, maybe to use the restroom, maybe to go to the grocery store, but it just non-functioning would be really appropriate way to say that, put that um, before I enrolled in grad school. But if people would say things like, oh, snap out of it, it was just like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Snap out of what? Like, that's where I was mentally. Like, it doesn't even, I don't know what I'm doing because my world collapsed because I had never been fired before. And I'm now experiencing all these things and nobody really knew how to like, even in that scenario, people struggled with how to have conversations that would be helpful. And I think we're scared too, because how do you approach somebody who's hurting or in pain, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, and just how do you bring it up in a way that isn't going to set them off and people at home can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's really hard Mm -hmm. when people don't listen and Mm -hmm. they don't understand. Yeah. We are looking for advertising partners. When you support this podcast, you're supporting a woman-owned BIPOC small business. We're looking for other small business partners who want to get in front of an audience of like-minded folks looking to smash the patriarchy and make cultural change. If that's you, email us at popculturemakesmejealous to get started. Just put ad partner interest in the subject line. Can't wait to hear from you. While Inside Out takes place in the mind of an 11-year-old girl, it's kind of a funny story, takes us into the world of a clinically depressed teenager who gets a new start after he checks himself into an adult psychiatric ward. As I mentioned earlier, I experienced situational depression while in grad school, but clinical depression, which according to the Mayo Clinic, is the more severe form of depression, also known as major depression or major depressive disorder. In this film, Craig, who is our teenager that we follow, needs support and treatment, but the youth wing of the psychiatric ward is closed for renovations. So he spends his time in the adult wing. It is a film adaptation of a book of the same name written by Ned Vizzini, published in 2006. The book was inspired by Vizzini's own experience of hospitalization for depression earlier in his life. Do you think that this film contributed to deconstructing the mental health stereotypes? You know, I feel like there's some maybe light stereotyping in that movie. Okay. Um, I, I think of like the, there's one character who named Humble, the mm-hmm. guy who's bald. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, I think he's, um, oh, what's the word? He's, he's, he's treated like a bit of a child. Yeah. That would be, I think, but it, it's not, it's not like, as bad as like one flew over the cuckoo's nest or anything. Right. He's still like a functioning adult, but he's very childlike. So mm-hmm. 
I, I think that that character is debatable. Overall, I think that the characters are pretty well rounded. Mm-hmm. You know, I I, I I think there's some weak spots for sure in this movie, but overall, you know, I did. I mean, I I I, I do enjoy the movie quite a bit. I think that I really re- related to it. Sort of, what's it like to be a teenager in a psychiatric ward? Because mm-hmm. I was nineteen when I first was hospitalized. Um, and what is it like to have your family come visit you? That is not a pleasant experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause he's got his mom who's trying to be loving and supportive and understanding and support him through it. And then his dad's just kind of like still piling on the pressure of life. Right. Like you have to do, you have to fill out this application. And his mom's like, no, it's okay. You, whenever you have to No, there's a deadline. Like that banter made me so uncomfortable for Craig because he's clearly feeling overwhelmed and dad's not helping. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I thought that was a really interesting scene for sure. Um, Just how like sometimes you get into a specific role as a parent. Well, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not a parent. I would, uh, this is what I see from the outside is that parents sometimes get in specific roles and it's hard for them to break out of that role. Yeah. And I think that he was not trying to, you know, be a jerk. I think he just, didn't know how to get outside of the role that he had created for himself. Mm. Um, But it doesn't mean it wasn't hard Mm -hmm. for Craig that his dad was still putting pressure on him. But, you know, but I really thought it was interesting. I also really thought it was interesting the choice of Jim Gaffigan and as like, you know, the straight man kind of thing. He was not really joking I think there might have been a couple of jokes, but it was he was a very straight laced role, and mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. But oh, geez, who's the mom in this one? I wonder. Lauren Graham. <laughs> yeah, Lauren Graham. Lorelai Gilmore. I know. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot. I forgot she was in it. So when I queued yeah. it up to watch it, I was like, "Hey, Lorelai." <laughs> <laughs> I forgot you were in this movie. Right. <laughs> like, exactly. I also forgot Zoe Kravitz was in this movie, and I mm-hmm. also forgot that it was um Emma Roberts playing the other teenager in the psychiatric ward. And I think she did a really good job. I think she played her character really well. And I loved how they still had that sort like I love that Craig still had you know, he's a teenager and he's going into this situation and it's scary. And you can feel that fear in him, even though he knows that he needs help, even though he knows that, you know, what he's experiencing could be harmful to him. He's still scared about moving into the step where he can get help. And I appreciate that they showed that because, you know, sometimes with representation, with mental health, we don't always see that, that human side of somebody who's suffering. Exactly. Exactly. No, I, I, I completely agree. It was just, you know, and, and that whole, his feeling when he first gets on the ward and it's like, where am I? What am I doing in here? And I know there was some of that for me. I mean, the, the reason why I, I had brought up this movie originally when we were talking uh, before um, before the, the taping um, a little while ago was just because I related so much to Craig um, for when I went in mm-hmm. and how you know, it, it. you see other people around you who you're like, oh, well, those people are worse off than me. 
and then you can get a little bit judgy like i think craig gets a little judgy and like well at least i'm not you know at least i'm not schizophrenic you know kind of thing sure. which i think is you know overall not a helpful thing yeah to think or or say um but i found that was really interesting sort of him like sort of feeling more comfortable around some people than others mm-hmm. um, yeah. but one of the things i loved about as the movie progressed was how much he wanted to help the other people mm-hmm. on the unit that was my favorite thing about the movie was how much he wanted to help especially bobby who's played by zach galifianakis mm-hmm. i loved their relationship i thought it was a really sweet way to have an adult child because essentially teenagers are children relationship mm-hmm. it didn't cross any lines of being inappropriate it, you know zach you know bobby wasn't trying to force craig to grow up and be they just allowed each other to be who they are. And I loved that. And I felt like we don't see that a lot, period. Yeah, very true. We don't see that a lot. I mean, I think the only times we really see it is when in movies, it's usually with like a teacher Mm -hmm. and a student, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but just, um, it's just really interesting to see that kind of friendship Mm -hmm. between an adult and a teenager in a way that is irreverent and fun, but also heartfelt and sometimes sad. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have like just the normal, typical teenage elements that they throw in there too, right? With the two girls, like Emma Roberts' character and then Zoe Kravitz' character, their names are escaping me. Their character names are escaping me at the moment. And just how he feels sort of torn between the two of them. It doesn't, right? Like it shows, to me, it said that that part of the story was saying like, Hey, just because he has clinical depression doesn't mean he doesn't have like this factor going on too, where he's in love with somebody, but also confused because this person makes him feel good. Like again, making him three-dimensional and rounded rather than his only character. His only characteristic is that he has clinical depression and that's it. Like they gave him more than that. Exactly. Exactly. No, that's, they made him a full-fledged individual, which mm-hmm. so many movies about teenagers, they do not do that. You know, so many movies. So it's always really nice to see that. Um, and yeah, to see that he's not just his mental health issue. Mm-hmm. He's not just depression. He's he's a full-fledged human being. Yeah. Um, I heard, I was listening to an interview with Claire Danes a couple weeks ago. She was on Dax well, years ago. She was on the, um, Dax Shepard's podcast. Um, okay. and I was listening to her interview because, um, a different episode of the show we did, we covered my so-called life. So I wanted to consume as much Claire Danes as I could. And she was talking about her character on Homeland. I haven't watched Homeland. It's, mm-hmm. it looks stressful to me. So I'm like, I'm good. Very <laughs> stressful. I couldn't finish the series. I, I watched through, I want to say like the third season. And then I was like, this is too much. Yeah. The reason it's I hard, bring, but she was perfect. <laughs> so the reason why I brought it up is because she talked about on that, um, sh- on that show about how people, she was very cognizant of what it meant to play a character. I think her character has bipolar disorder in my, mm-hmm. to play mm-hmm. a character with bipolar disorder and to do it in a way that's going to not like add to the stigma and make an like an alienation of a community. And I just love that she would took it seriously. And then she mentioned that in the course of her career, having done Homeland, people have reached out to her and have just been like, 
you know, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Like you're like just overwhelming, um, affirmation that she's done a great job portraying a person with, with, um, this particular mental health. And I, man, what, uh, that's got that. I understand where she's coming from about feeling a lot of pressure to represent well, because there's been such terrible representation in the past. Yeah. No, no, she was perfect. I thought it was an incredibly textured um, performance Mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of looking at, there was a lot of um, talk around, you know, therapy, medication, stigma, um, can, you know, is your mental health come first or does your job come first? Mm. And what she always had to put her job first just because of what she did, mm-hmm. you know, and that was not always helpful to her. That was mm-hmm. not always good for her to do that, but yeah. she always had to put her job first. And like, if she was having mental, severe mental health issues, she was basically forced to put her mental health first, but she never was really able to choose to do that. Mm-hmm. Um but no, I, I, I'm obsessed with Claire Danes and my so-called life was like one of my favorite shows of all time. It's such I was a good so show. sad. It was only one season. Yes. Oh my gosh. I, and, and, and I'll say little women again, just because I love saying little women. That, <laughs> I mean, yeah, little women's one of the ones that's comfort for me. Like that's, there's just something very, I don't know what it is. It just makes, it just, you know, I'm, I, it's like, I, when I, when Beth dies, I need to cry. You know, I have the cry and it helps Mm -hmm. crying's good. Crying feels good sometimes. And that whenever I watch it, it's like, I need that cry and need that sadness. And does any, and we talk and a couple of folks and I have talked about this on the pat on other episodes, but it's like when Claire Danes cries, cry like she is the queen of crying on screen and doing it in a way that doesn't feel trite overacted any like it feels completely authentic and natural (laughs) her lower lip have you noticed her lower lip like shivers yeah when she's crying or she's about to cry like yeah yeah it's i she's so good (laughs) i know Anyway, I know, I know. That's actually her interview with Jack Shepard's actually really interesting because she does talk about her um, life through therapy and just some of the experiences she had. She talks about how she started at a really young age because she had seen, she had like, she didn't call him, what did she? She was seeing things like gargoyles and what have you at a really early age. And so her parents were very art, like very artsy fartsy. Like they lived in the same building as Basquiat or something like that. And so she's very open about her own mental health journey. And I, I, I just feel like think like that just helps so much when somebody that we have a ton of respect for and admire because of their art is very open and on, and she wasn't hesitant to talk about it. She was just very matter of fact about, you know, these are the experiences that I had in my life and that, you know, contributed to who I've become. Mm-hmm. So if you ever have a chance to listen to it, that one particular okay. episode, <laughs> I will check it out for sure. And she talks about my so-called life on there as well, which like, oh, oh it was like so good. <laughs> well, I was the same age as her, you know, her character. And I'm, I think I'm maybe like a year younger than she is. Oh, okay. So yeah. I really connected with that. Yeah. 
She was 13 when she did the pilot. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that she was 13, but you know, we knew that she was like 15 on the show or whatever, 14 or 15 on the show. It's a great show. And, and friends at home who are listening, if you haven't listened to our most so-called life episode, head on over and do that after you listen to this one. And my so-called life is currently on Hulu. And I hope it still is by the time the show airs. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you can watch well, it on the ABC app. <laughs> I know what I'm doing this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> hey friends. I just wanted to pop in real quick and say thanks for listening and sticking with us. I really appreciate it. And you taking the time to listen really means a lot. If you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts, I would love it if you could drop us a review. I know it's not always an easy task or sometimes we think we'll do it real quick and then we get distracted. Heavens knows I'm the queen of getting distracted. It would really mean a lot to me if you just drop a couple of notes on what you think of the show. I would love it if you gave us five stars, but you know, you do you. I understand. You have to be true to what your your belief system is about this program. With that said, I'll let you get back to the show now. Charlie Bartlett first premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival on May 1st, 2000. Often advertised as a rich kid who becomes the self-appointed school psychologist, it's a bit deeper than that. And in 2008, I first saw this movie and it impacted me differently than movies mentioned earlier, like Girl Interrupted. Charlie is living with his mother, who is also experiencing depression. And in the New York Times review of this film, writer Stephen Holden had this to say, quote, wise child that he is, Charlie understands that he is his mother's emotional caretaker and lifeline to whatever stability she can muster, end quote. I do also want to add um, this movie stars, you know, it's Robert Downey Jr. and Kate Denning, Kat Dennings, and a whole bunch of other people who are now like buco famous. How did this movie impact you and how you feel about mental health representation for high school students? Sure. So I think this is pretty much the best movie when it comes to looking at high school students Mm -hmm. and mental health. Um, I cannot say too much about this movie. It is perfection. It is glorious. So the idea is that there's this um, uh, teenager named Charlie Bartlett whose parents are very rich and he's gone to all these different private schools but kicked out of every single one for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And so he's going to public school and he's decides that and he wants to be popular and decides that somehow he's going to be popular um, because he's going to sort of play psychiatrist to students with mental health issues uh, psychiatrist slash therapist mm-hmm. and he does it at first um, just to be popular but then he starts to do it because he cares about the kids and he wants to help them yeah so um, and he gets he ends up being popular um in the movie um but i he you know he starts to see what is the underside of popularity Mm -hmm. um but it's just it's so good it's it's just a lovely lovely movie um and i just think it's um it's it's i think it's the truest movie about high school mental health that i've ever seen Yeah. Cause every student has something right. Like, and that's what really struck me this time around watching it this week was that every single student had feelings and emotions Mm -hmm. and the only person willing to listen was Charlie. None of the adults were willing to help. And here he is this kid who's just kind of trying to figure out his own life, dealing with his own issues. 
Like that to me, we should be ashamed of ourselves as a society because I'm pretty sure every teenager feels unheard (laughs) with their emotions and we should not be putting people in that situation. Exactly. Exactly. So I think this was, you know, a good movie to really show people how important it is to listen to teenagers Mm -hmm. when they talk about their, their emotions. Yeah. And there's a lot of layers too. So as you mentioned, you know, he, as we've talked, mentioned, he's comes from a wealthy family, but his dad's in prison and his mom's just kind of existing and trying to keep everything afloat. Then you have Kat Dunnings and Robert Downey Jr.'s characters. They play father and daughter, which always makes me chuckle because they're in the Marvel universe together. (laughs) (laughs) And you forget that they did this movie together and you're just like, you too. Anyway, um, but you know, we learn that Kat's mom has left and RDJ has, you know, his own struggles. He's struggling with, um, addiction and maybe his addiction is a symptom of something else because he's of his emotions and his own mental health, who knows, Mm -hmm. but they have all of these different types of layers. And with Charlie, the first time his mom's like, Hey, let's go visit your dad. He's like, he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't get out of the car. Spoiler alert, but this movie came out in 2007. So it's not my fault. It's spoiled. Um, (laughs) his mom's in all black in the, the first time they go visit him. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then after they go through all the emotions and you get through all the, the big things that happen, they go to visit dad again. And she's wearing, I think it's pink or lavender dress. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting representation sort of a subtle nod to hey we're a little bit better now like she's willing to wear something less mournful because black is you know the way they had her dressed I the first time I saw the movie I thought is she going to the gravesite like you look very sad like are you going to a funeral and then this time it was a little bit not cheerful that's the wrong word but the second time mm-hmm. in the movie they go to see him she's her, her yeah. moods lifted in a way that's a little bit healthier than um in an hour before (laughs) well one of the things i found interesting was both with charlie and susan susan that's her name thank you no problem so you know both of their one thing they had in common is both of their parents had things with you know issues with alcohol Mm because the the mom of charlie you know you'll see her taking clonopin with a glass of wine yeah um, and she just, it's almost anytime you see her seated, she's got a glass of wine near her. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's something, um, but I really love the two of them together, Charlie and Susan, mm-hmm. and just how deep their relationship got. Yeah. And how they could both be very irreverent and silly together by the same time of having deep conversations. Mm-hmm. And really caring about each other so yeah that's it's I, I love to see such a functional relationship mm-hmm. with teenagers you don't really always see that but I yeah. thought that's one of the things I loved about it yeah it's like you have to it's like for whatever reason teen romances unless it's a rom-com they have to be like tumultuous or constantly fighting or something it's not like a average teen experience like I you know when I watch teen movies if I'm gonna think of I didn't really date in high school actually because I thought dating in high school was stupid (laughs) (laughs) I have the rest of my life to torture myself this way um but it it, it's 
that's another level of representation that we don't always get to see a lot of is just, you know, this basic, they get along, they have harmony. Um, and I wonder how, how common that is, how more, how common that is over some of the other sort of, some of the other relationship types there are for high school kids. Hmm. How common is in in movies or in real life? Both, or just in real life, because I feel like when I was in high school, my friends, they were just chill. Like when they were dating people, it was chill. They didn't have, you know, we had, like you were saying, they had conversations with their partner. They, you know, were also silly and goofy. It wasn't like this big tumultuous, whatever kind of situation. It was very much like you're 16 and you have limited life experience and exposure. And that's kind of how you're behaving. And it's completely acceptable yeah I don't know that's a good question um I had some abnormal friends so I don't know if I really (laughs) had (laughs) yeah that way I had some interesting people um yeah as friends when I was 16 17 just a different crowd so yeah yeah I don't think it was quite representative yeah okay that's the other thing too, right? Like my son now will say things like, we don't talk like that when we watch movies um, that are like present day teenagers. It's like, who wrote this? We don't talk like that. And I'm just like, I, listen, I'm of the generation where adults wrote teen dialogue and we didn't know any better. We just thought that that was the way it was. Okay. Like stop, stop with that. Suspend your disbelief real quick and enjoy this movie with me. Um, one of the other things that I thought was interesting about Charlie Bartlett is how he started shopping um psychiatrist so he could get oh, the medications yeah. he needed for his classmates mm-hmm. that was and, an interesting scene for sure mm-hmm. and, and he, uh yeah that was that was yeah go ahead as to say he didn't have the foresight to realize how like dangerous that could actually be yeah yeah that's the whole thing with medication is that you have to be so careful and so many people they don't do that as much anymore just because of, you know, keeping that, you know, databases updated and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But doctor shopping used to be a huge thing that people would do and, you know, whoever they used the medication for, whether it was themselves or, or somebody else, mm-hmm. that was, that was, you know, it's, it's always a danger to um, either try to you know, seek out certain medications if one doctor is not going to give them to you or to give them to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was an interesting scene and just um, sort of his acting in that. I really liked his acting. Um, uh, the, the, Charlie, the, the actor who plays Charlie Bartlett, I loved yeah. his acting in that scene. Yeah the consequence of that right so then um what's the kid's name who takes the takes too many of the pills but they were able to yeah thank you they were able to get to him in time and that moment when charlie realizes like oh this is like he feels sad like and then he just totally does what he can to make him I don't know, feel a little bit better by helping get mm-hmm. the play going and just exactly. really advocating for him and, and making him feel like he's a part. And I loved that too, because this kid has a good heart. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's, that's, I just love a movie with the, with somebody who's got a good heart at the center that just, yeah, that makes it for me. 
Cause the other, you know, yeah. Yeah. Cause the other hurdle is, is sometimes when we have characters who do, or who are suffering from mental health and need support, they're painted as a bad guy or evil or, um, all of these other negative type things without they're mm-hmm. with, they, they're painted without empathy. That's a better way to say that. Um, and in the case of Charlie Bartlett, you have somebody who's just very caring and very loving and wants to fix everything and everybody, because, you know, he knows how that feels too. He wants to not, he doesn't want people to feel the way that he feels. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No, it's just, it, it, it really, um, it made me think like, what if I had a friend like that mm-hmm. in high school, like Charlie Bartlett, wouldn't that have been lovely? Right. Right. His relationship with the principal, I thought was kind of funny because, you know, the, here, the principal is just trying to do his job, live in his best life. He's supposed to just have his easy breezy course of action. And then here comes Charlie, who's like shedding a light on all the things that are wrong with how the students Mm -hmm. are supported. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the whole, whole thing with how much stress I couldn't even imagine, like, I couldn't even imagine being a teacher. Like, I just, I, I learned a long time ago that I do not handle teenagers or children well when it comes to, like, discipline. Yeah. Or, like, keeping them, you know, on task. Yeah. So I can't even imagine being a teacher, let alone a principal. I let the other, you know, I have other extended family members who are teachers, and I think that is an amazing thing. And I say kudos to every teacher because that is like one of the hardest jobs there is yeah. out there. But I, with, I could not do it. Yeah. Cause they're dealing with all kinds of personalities and, you know, <laughs> dynamics and what have you. I think what I love too, about going to go back to inside out really quickly, um, because sure. they show a teacher in inside out as well. When, when, um, Riley starts her first day of school, And the teacher's like, where are you from? You know, just innocent questions about her starting. And then she just sort of like sadness touches a core memory and just, she gets really, and Riley just gets sad in that moment. And the teacher's just very, okay, that's yeah. Okay. Let's it kind of sweetly moves on. Mm -hmm. Um, and Mm -hmm. that's gotta be hard to do, especially for middle schoolers. Cause there's just, first of all, you're like, emotions are everywhere period when you're in a middle right. school and between the ages of like 11 and 25 I feel like you don't really fully get a handle on how you feel because everything is just what it's what is all of you know that scene in inside out when like disgust and anger and um fear fear are all just panicking like oh my gosh I'm like why does that feel like that's just like what being a teenager is like <laughs> like every emotion is at the core at the forefront and you can't figure out how to navigate it and you're just like "Ah." (laughs) going around inside of your head yelling your head off Mm -hmm. yeah and it's interesting too how in all three of these movies they do have um people who do want to who do care and want to support you know with charlie bartlett not 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 really in the same way. Susan has, is kind of his anchor, mm-hmm. but for Riley, it's her parents. And for, um, well, you know, and it's kind of a funny story. I felt like Bobby was sort of the anchor for Craig while he was, um, in the hospital. And I, and I 
again, I really appreciate how there's that wide variety too, of showing like, it's not always going to come from who you, the support you need isn't always going to come from the people you assume it's going to come from. Very true. That is so true. And yeah, there's, there's a scene in Charlie Bartlett where uh, Charlie tells Susan that uh, when his dad went to prison, he told his dad told him that he needed to take care of his mom. Mm -hmm. And then Susan says, well, who takes care of you? Yes. And I was like, oh my God, that's so sad. And he's a kid. It shouldn't be his responsibility to take care of his mom. That's hard. Exactly. Gosh. Exactly. So, but she was very lost. She, she just didn't know, you know, what to do. Yeah. And I don't know if she was like that before her husband went to, well, it, they said that, I think he's, Charlie told Susan that, um, that she became very depressed after mm. the dad went to prison, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's so hard when kids don't have an adult anchor. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cause it's not their job. I tell my son that all the time. It's not your job. You're a kid. Don't, that's not a thing that you need to be worried about. And when you get there, we'll cross that bridge together because it's not your job to bear it all by yourself. You have been on this planet for very little time. <laughs> right. Yeah. When I was in high school, the only excusable illness was something visible. The idea that a teen needed a day to recover or a few days at that was scoffed or even mocked. Now, if my child needs a mental health day, I can call in and say, and say that exactly that we're just taking a mental health day and it's considered an excused absence. So to me, that's progress, but we still have so much more work to do, I think. (laughs) And I'm grateful for that because there are days I feel like you need to learn how to balance that too, right? Like I'm struggling today. I need a day. I need to, I need a day and to give that space for kids to be able to learn how to navigate that. Cause I mean, we had to have a fever and throwing up to miss school. Like that were the only acceptable things. It didn't matter if you were just having a little tough day emotionally too bad, suck it up, go to school. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. That was the whole thing was, you know, when I was a kid, I would always try to get out of school. Well, even some as a teenager as well. Yeah. Just because I just didn't feel like I fit in. I felt like an outcast. Um, and I would just dealt with a lot of mental health issues. I also have always dealt with insomnia. Yeah. So I would be so tired sometimes. Yeah. So tired because I would just be up all night, like just couldn't sleep. Mm-hmm. So I would, you know, have some excuse or like, I don't want to go to school. I just don't feel like it. And yeah, the like school. That the school system is very much designed for those people who can get up early and function. Like we are not morning people in this house. So it is a strut. We are on the struggle bus every single morning. And it's, it's almost like, I don't know. Again, it's one of those things where when you, um, I don't know what the answer is. Well, in California, starting next year, schools can't st- have to start at nine. They can't start before nine for certain grade oh, levels. Wow. And so we're just missing that, but I'm glad that they're doing it because I, mm-hmm. and it is a sh- both, neither of us are morning people. Like we are more of the, we start functioning around three. And then because my job demands that I'm up early and working, I'm tired by nine, but on the weekends, like we hit the ground running, we're like ready noonish we're kind of like starting to become human and then three it's like all right what are we going to do today (laughs) yeah 
and you know sounds my, familiar <laughs> yeah and then i'm up till you know one or two in the morning and so is my kid and then sunday we can you know so it's hard that monday through friday is hard because the world is very much structured for you have to be up and functional by eight and that's just mean <laughs> yeah you know one of the reasons why i decided to go in business for myself was so i could sleep <laughs> yeah I support that. I support that. If I ever can work for myself, the day will not start before 10. That is for sure. <laughs> and thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Can you tell our friends at home where they can find you if they want to keep up with you? Sure. Um, so uh, you can find me on my website, which is wearewritingwisely.com or on LinkedIn under my name and Foistel. I'm also on Facebook under uh, my business page is Writing Wisely. And on Instagram, I am Anne Floystal Author. Awesome. We will link to all of those things in the show notes for you guys to make it a little bit easier to find Anne. Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous is written, edited, and produced by me, Julia Washington. And as always, thanks for tuning in, y'all. Until next time. <laughs>